Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at our Southwood campus, and I want to welcome you to Grace. Uh, If you are new here, we are so thankful that you've joined us this morning as we are continuing in our spring sermon series where we are looking at the book of James, where we are reading verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week by week, through this letter that was written to early believers that gave instruction and guidance for how we as followers of Jesus Christ can live faithful and fruitful lives. Because just as we're saved by our faith in Jesus Christ, so too we are called to live by faith in the accomplished work, in the finished, completed work of Jesus. And so if you were with us the last few weeks, you know that as we've looked at James, he kind of just comes out swinging hard. And he talks about trials and temptations. Uh, he talks about these, these difficulties, these, these struggles that all believers face. And so when we get to the passage today of James chapter 1, uh, verses 19 through 27, in fact, if you want to turn there now, turn there in your Bible or go there on your phone. James chapter 1, starting in verse 19, we're going to see the the end of this chapter is really dedicated to not not necessarily more of how we persevere or how we build endurance through trial, but instead James is going to be shifting our focus to how do we do this? How do we commit ourselves to a life that's lived within the will according to the commands of God? And what it really comes down to is that we would be a people who are still before our Lord, a people who are listening attentively to what he has to say, and then living according to what commands he gives us. And this is really what we're called to as believers. This is the instruction that's given to us as followers of Jesus Christ. And this is something that I think we all see play out on some area in some sphere of life, that as we listen to certain people or certain instruction or certain wisdom, that, that our goal, our hope is that we would not just listen, but that we would live differently based on what we've heard. Right, just uh, over the break, over the New Year's break, my wife and I, we loaded up our kids. We took them to a wedding in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, the, a wedding that I was officiating. And on our way back from that wedding, we hit some uh, troubling times. Uh, the first troubling time that we hit on our kind of big road trip back to Texas uh, was that my wife and our youngest, our youngest who's almost four years old, they began to have this really in-depth conversation about mortality. Uh, because that's what you do on a car trip, right? You just talk about death. And so uh, our youngest son, he, for some reason, started to ask my wife about heaven. And he was like, oh, you know, what he'd heard about it in church or heard about it, you know, from a friend or hopefully from us. Uh, and as he was asking my wife about heaven, he was like, is heaven real? And my wife was like, yes, like it's, it's very real. It's a place that God has made for us to enjoy, to be with him. He's like, well, when do we go to heaven? She was like, well, um, you know, when we die. Like, that's, that's kind of what happens. Like, you die, but, you're, you know, even though your body dies and is, is broken, but the Lord brings us to heaven to be with himself. And so then they're talking about death. And he's like, well, what is, how, who dies? And she's like, well, everyone dies. And who, is death is real? We're like, yeah, it's, it's very real, all right? So great conversation. Uh, it wasn't necessarily on the, you know, the agenda for the trip, but... Hey, great, like every moment, seize the moment, seize the opportunity to talk about these meaningful things with our almost four-year-old. So about an hour after that really great in-depth conversation, spiritual conversation, uh, my family, we hit our second troublesome time, which was some bad weather. Uh, The rain was coming, it was super windy, and as we were driving through this portion of Louisiana, my wife's phone starts blowing up with this, and it was a weather warning from her phone that told us that there was a tornado watch 
in our area. So where we were, there had been a tornado or a tornado warning. I don't know. Whenever they'd seen a tornado, okay? So tornado warning. They saw a, war- they saw a tornado. And some of us were like, okay, there's a tornado warning. But it was okay. We were like 10 minutes from our, from our destination. So it was going to be all right. We were going to make it. Eyes on the sky, but, you know, also eyes on the road. So, uh. Uh, But we... As we're driving, this, this alarm goes off, and so our daughter, oldest, who's eight years old, she was like, hey, what's going on? Why is there a blaring horn in our car? And so we were explaining, we're like, well, this is a tornado warning, like tornadoes happen, and so there's one somewhere in the state, maybe near us. She's like, wait, what, what kind of tornado? Like, where is it? Like, are we going to see the tornado, or are we going to go to Oz? Like, you know, how's this all going to play out? And so as we're trying to kind of calm her and reassure her of like, hey, it's okay, like there's a tornado somewhere, but we're probably not going to see it. She's still, you know, she's a little worked up, a little worried about what's going to happen, but we're calming her down. And in the midst of that conversation, our youngest, our four-year-old, turns to her in the car and he goes, um, we're all going to die, you know. <laughs> Which is true, Right? So I couldn't refute that point, but we're like, yes, true, probably not right now, um, you know, but yes, I suppose that is correct. And what was really cool is that in the sense, I got to see our four-year-old, I got to see him listen to what we say and then live differently. He heard what we had to say and then he lived it out immediately. Maybe not in the most pastoral manner, right? And maybe his bedside could use a little bit of work, uh, but... He was speaking what he had just heard. And in the same way for us, as we read and learn and understand the word of God, God wants us to then live differently. He wants us to take how we listen or what we listen to and then live it out. Like he's calling us to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word, to live out the commands, to live out the instruction, to live out the guidance that he gives us in abundance in his holy scripture. And this is what James is really getting at in chapter 1, verse 19 through 27, is he's talking about how do we listen attentively to the Word of God and then live differently based on what he's told us. All right, so that's really the main flow. That's really the whole breakdown of the passage we're in this morning. So if you look with me in verse 19, James starts by saying this. He says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. James begins by by laying out this really incredible, useful wisdom from the Lord. He says, we are called as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called as children, as sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, to be people who are quick to listen. And see, what's what's important about that phrasing there, that the term in the Greek specifically is, is not just someone who's quiet all the time but someone who has attuned their ear to listen specifically, I mean, to people, but also to the Lord, that we would be people who are, who are trained in our minds to hear the voice of God. And this is something that I know I see play out in my parenting. Uh, for all of us that have had children or have babies even right now, like you learn as a parent very early on the cry of your child. Like my wife and I can be at a gathering or a party with a bunch of kids, and all of a sudden you hear from maybe one of the bedrooms like, and every parent in the room can know. Like everyone takes a moment, they pause, they listen. They're like, okay, yeah, not my kid. Right? And that's because you know. Or maybe it is your kid. You're like, mm, they're fine. <laughs> and that's, there's like a way more intense cry. Uh, that's, that's an easy cry. Like that's, that's no big deal. 
Because we know, we train ourselves, we are trained as parents to recognize and respond to the cries of our children in particular. In the same way, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to train our minds to listen to the voice of God. And the way we do that is that we force ourselves, we discipline ourselves to be slower to speak, to be slower to anger. Why? Because the great listener is probably, or the great talker is probably not a great listener, right? That's why we're slower to speak. And we're slower to anger because an angry response to the trials and the temptations that James has already talked about, an angry response to that is, is not generally going to move us in the direction uh, in, in terms of developing the character and conduct that God wants for us, right? That's why he says human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. God's goal for our righteousness, for our maturity, for our, our development is not assisted by a quick and angry response to the trial or temptation, to the issue, the struggle of our life. So James says we need to be a people who pause, who slow down, right? Something we've talked about over the last few weeks. Quick to listen to the Lord, slow to speak, slow to anger. And so put away, put away all of this filth, put away all this evil excess, and humbly welcome the message implanted within you, which is able to save your souls. James really brings it all kind of to a point. He says you should be slow to speak. Or so, sorry, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, and you should put these things away. Why? Because we have an opportunity to humbly welcome this message that's been implanted within us. It's something that James talked that we talked about just last week. That James says that we are born of the truth of God, and this truth of the Lord it, it develops life. It brings us incredible life and joy and satisfaction if we're living according to the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, so put away these other possible responses, put away these other instincts, and instead, humbly welcome this message that's been implanted within you. Why? Because this message is going to, in fact, is able to save your souls. And when we talk about saving your souls, what's interesting that that even as we talk about this, the saving of the soul, a lot of times our mind immediately goes to, we're thinking, oh, the salvation, right? This is like the, the salvation of our soul, that we would be with the Lord for all of eternity. Um, but that's not really what's likely in view here as James uses this phrasing. In fact, the Greek term for soul here is used a lot of times in our New Testament. And many of the times, especially in this phrase of save your souls, generally we actually see it translated as save your life. That rather than it being focused entirely on just this inward being, this, this spiritual aspect of who we are, of how God has made us, it's actually this term for soul is, is often better translated as this holistic view, your entire being. It's the same term, it's the exact same phrase that Jesus used when he talked about how those who seek to save their life will lose it. But those who lose their lives for his sake will find it. Jesus is talking about discipleship, and he's talking about following after him. And he says, if you're trying to just, you know, amass for yourself your own kingdom, your own comfort, he says, you're going to lose, you're going to lose all, all of what you've built up. You're gonna, that none of that stuff is lasting. It's all fleeting. And so his encouragement to his disciples was instead, give your life, not just your soul, give your entire life, your entire being over to him. And as we trust him with all that we are, with all that we have, we can trust that God is going to deliver us, that God is going to use our lives for his glory and others' good. And it's not always easy, it's not always comfortable, but it's good. In the same way, James is saying you can trust that the word of truth, that the message that God has given to you, that he's implanted within you, 
says, this message is really, it's going to deliver you. It's going to save your life. You'll have a life that is well-lived, a life that is saved in really two different ways. You're saved from the consequence of sin, right? Proverbs, wisdom literature is full of this. It talks about, again, same kind of terminology and talking about how we have an opportunity if we live according to the wisdom of God, that we are saved from the consequence of sin, from the destruction that sin brings, something we talked about last week. In the same way, not only are we saved from the consequence of sin, but we are also saved for the crown of righteousness that we also looked at last week. This reward, this eternal reward that God has promised to the life well lived, this reward and affirmation that God promises to give to those who live according to his purposes. So James says you should humbly welcome that message. Don't be quick to spout off your thoughts and your gut reactions to these difficult situations. It says instead, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Welcome this message that God has given to you, this good news of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, you'll save your life. You'll save your life. So really the, the first thing I think we really need to understand and wrestle with from this passage is that we as followers of Jesus Christ are called to be a people who listen deeply to the word of God who listen attentively to what he has to say. And this is a, a, a practice that comes easy for us uh, in other relationships, in many relationships. Uh, I remember, you know, as I was in college ministry for eight years, worked exclusively with college students, and I talked with a lot of guys and a lot of gals about dating, right? There was a constant conversation taking place in our ministry uh, because students were like just moving and shaking. They were like trying to find the one. So as we would talk about that, they'd have a lot of questions. They'd have a lot of opinions. And so we would have dating series or I'd have a lot of counseling appointments where we would talk through these different dating relationships. And what I found time and again was that it was really interesting that a lot of students, they struggled and maybe some of us still, we struggle to be a great date. And one of the ways that that played out is that a lot of times the students would show up to a date or maybe a first date. They'd show up at a party. They'd be meeting a person that maybe they're like, oh, she's cute. Like, hmm, we'll see what happens, right? And when they would have those interactions, they were often trying to be really interesting uh, without being really interested in this other person, Right? They would show up to these dates and they would just talk about like, oh, these are the things that I do or like, this is what I'm interested in. This is where I'm headed in life. Like, this is the vision. This is my 57-year plan for how I'm going to be an you know, electrical engineer. Like, that's great. But really, the greatest success in those dating relationships, the greatest success in really most relationships is if we walk into those moments listening, right? Not just telling, but listening, asking good questions, the really great first date is you sit down and you're like, oh my gosh, you have a life. I see you have a life. Tell me about it. Yeah. Right? What's your deal? What's your favorite? Everything. Just everything. What's your favorite of everything? Tell me about it. Right? And listening deeply and attentively to those answers is really, and if you walk into a date and you're not asking those questions, you're a bad date. Look, that's just how it is. So you need to, we need to recognize that that's how relationships are formed. In the same way, our relationship with the Lord should be defined by not us telling the Lord about all of our needs and all our desires and all the things that we have. God wants to hear from us for sure, but it's a relationship. And a relationship is not a one-way street. A relationship is one where we stop and are still before our God and we listen to what he has to say. We read his word. We allow it to sink in. We humbly welcome this message of truth that he's given to us.
that he's implanted within our hearts by his grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. But what's so difficult about this is that our attention is a coveted commodity, that our attention is always trying to be drawn away to other things or other people, right? Everyone wants our attention. Some people need our attention, but God deserves our attention. He deserves our attention, but it's really hard because we're constantly bombarded with other things to pay attention to. Just a few years ago, Forbes put out this study where they had found, it was, it was in the marketing research world, and they had kind of done this long-term study, and they found that people in our modern age, we generally, every single one of us, generally, day-to-day, are exposed to about five to 10,000 advertisements every day. I was like, that's wild. That doesn't, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. But it happens. It happens on social media. It happens on websites. It happens on, if you're watching TV. Uh, it shows up in your inbox, in your email. Like, we are constantly, we're walking down the street. You see an A&M bus pass, and you're like, I do want a Pepsi. Right? Like, that's, there's just things that happen that you're like, wow. Like, just constant, 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 constant bombardment with these things that want our attention. And so the Lord knows this about us. He's not surprised by our current climate and our current culture. And he says, I want you to remember that I deserve your attention. I deserve the first fruits of your attention of your mind. And so for us, it's a, it's a discipline that we need to seek to build in our lives where we are actually controlling our attention, that we're not just swept about by the different demands on our attention day to day, but instead we really are reflective and focused on where am I spending my attention? It's one of the things I've loved even in the, you know, technology world with phones. Like a lot of times now phones will tell you, I mean, I get it every Sunday morning, the screen time report that tells me, how did I spend my time on my phone over the past week? And goodness gracious, it's very revealing. And I realize like, oh, wow, I'm spending a lot of time on that app or I'm really spending a lot of time in that thing. And what I love is that you can use technology. I mean, it's, it's a tool to be used, and we can use it uh, to set boundaries, and you can set limits with, okay, how much am I using this activity, or how much am I looking through those posts? We, we, can put, we can throttle it. We can put limits on those things. We can control our attention in that way. In, in many seasons of my life, I've, I generally stop. A lot of times it happens maybe every semester, is that I'll stop, and I'll just look at my calendar, and I'll just, I'll just make it a blank page. I'll have a blank calendar in front of me. And what I'll do is I'll try to create a 30-minute increment breakdown of my day-to-day of my entire week. And every 30 minutes, I, I map it all out. I write it down. And I think, okay, from you know, waking up to going to sleep, how am I spending all of this time? And it's a really helpful practice. Because what happens is that when I sit down with that blank page, what I do is I keep in mind, okay, first things first. First things first, what are the most important things? What are the most important roles or relationships or responsibilities that I have? And I'm gonna put those in their appropriate places every single day. And I map it out. And then I fill in the gaps with you know, the other responsibility. And I, I go through kind of the concentric circles of responsibilities. But that's something that we can do. The calendar is our tool. Like we're not slaves of our calendar. It, it works for us. And we can set our mind to this discipline of controlling where our attention is spent. And and I think many times what what I find, the reason that I even pause and I build out that calendar is because every once in a while I have moments of clarity and I realize, okay, when I have margin, or when I have this open spot, when this meeting gets canceled, or when, you know, this, this day frees up, when there's a freeze in College Station and everyone's home for a day, 
because it's like 35 degrees, ooh, <laughs> outside. What gets first dibs on that margin? What, 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 immediate, what gets that, that first opening in my calendar, in my responsibilities? And many times, it's not probably what should get first dibs on that moment or on that time period. So that's why everyone's why I pause and I say, okay, I'm going to build out my week. I'm going to look at 30-minute increments and think, what, where am I spending this time? On rest or eating or, or with people or with projects or processes, whatever it might be. We can control our attention. And the Lord says, I want you to control your attention because I want you to put me first. I want you to listen deeply to what I have to say. But by spending time in his word, by spending time in prayer, this is one of the reasons we talk so much about joining community, by being, about being a part of a community group, being a part of a small group, joining a Bible study, signing up for things like Table for Eight, because we want to control our attention. We want to put first things first. We say, I want to put myself in a place where I'm, I'm listening to the word of God attentively so that I can live differently. And that's, that's, that's the effect. That's the, that's the next step that James takes us to. It says, not only are we listening to the Lord's word, not only listen to what he has to say, but then we're going to live it out. This is what he says in verse 22. He says, be sure, but be sure to live, you live out the message and do not merely listen to it and so deceive yourselves. He says, this isn't just, you know, information for your knowledge. He says, this is wisdom and application for your daily life. And then he gives an example. He says, if someone merely listens to the message and does not live it out, he's like someone who gazes at his own face in a mirror. And for he gazes at himself and then goes out and immediately forgets what sort of person he was. He says, if you're just listening to the word of God and you're not living it out, he says, you're like a guy who just kind of walks past the mirror, you're like, oh, yeah, that's good, and then just keeps moving. And immediately forgets. What exactly he looked like, what kind of person he really is. He says, but the person who peers into the perfect law of liberty and fixes his attention there does not become a forgetful listener, but one who lives it out, he will be blessed in what he does. James says, we're not given the word of God for just our cursory glance. It's not meant to just be this like little distraction that we like get to 10 minutes a day. So God has given us his word. He's given us his wisdom. He's given us his truth that we would fix our attention here. That we would pay close attention to what he has to say. That we wouldn't become just forgetful listeners, but that we would be people who live it out. So we fix our gaze on this perfect law of liberty. This really cute, this really beautiful descriptor of the word of God, this perfect law of liberty. When James talks about it being a perfect law, of liberty, uh, it brings to mind really a lot of what is written in the book of Romans, what Paul writes to the church about in Romans, also in Galatians, about how the law of the Lord is given to us, and it really brings freedom. That freedom is not actually found in just the complete absence of limitations. True freedom is found in the acceptance of the right limitations. We see this in our normal daily lives. If I decide, like, I'm, I'm, a, limitless, I'm a limitless person, and I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to eat whatever I want, whenever I want, however much of it I want. We think to ourselves, like, that's freedom, right? I'm eating whatever, whenever, however. But, but the reality is that if I'm rejecting all limitations now, what that's going to actually bring are a lot more limitations in the future. If I'm eating in a way that's just destructive to my health, it means that, you know, a year, five years, ten years down the road, I'm going to be like, what? I can't have salt anymore? Man, you know, like that's, that's tough. 
We are limited in the future if we reject the right limitations today. And in the same way, James is saying we, we are people that are given this law of liberty, that the law of God, the commands of God, it's not designed to constrain us. The law of God is actually meant to free us to live a life that is truly satisfying, that's truly fulfilling. And what Jesus says when he talks about the laws, he says, it's, it's easy. He says, my, my, take my yoke. It's easy upon you. My, my burden is light. It's freedom now and in the future because Jesus says all of it, it was really comes down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He says that's what it all hinges on is that we would live a life of love, that we would live a life of, of recognition, of humility, recognizing that this life is less about me and it's more about the Lord and it's more about my neighbor. So James is saying if we peer and fix our attention on this law of liberty, so this is where blessing is found. Not that we're just hearers of it, but that we are living it out. The blessing comes from living it out, from putting it into practice. For if someone thinks he is religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, and so deceives his heart, his religion is futile. James says there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of you know, activity that you can take part in that maybe feels religious, that feels glorifying to the Lord. He says, and yet, if you're going through these rites and rituals, and yet you are failing to live out what he already said, right, this quick to listen, the slow to speak, the slow to anger, he says, the religion, it's, it's not really glorifying to the Lord. You're deceiving yourself. Pure and undefiled religion before the God, the Father, is this, to care for the orphans and the widows in their adversity, to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's not that James is giving a comprehensive definition of what religion looks like, of what following the Lord or, or, or praising the Lord or worshiping the Lord looks like. This isn't a comprehensive definition. But instead what he's giving is a contrast against some of those sort of self-serving rites and rituals that, that have no heart, that really have no meaning, that, that don't bring glory to the Lord. It was a common mistake for people in that day. It's a common mistake for us even now that we can convince ourselves, I'm doing all these things, right? I'm showing up to this thing, or I'm, I'm serving in that way, or, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm learning, and I'm, I'm making sure that my kids show up to this event or that event. He says, but, but you can get so caught up in just, like, going through these paces and going through these motions that we forget that God is not just seeking to change our behavior. Like, yes, God cares about that. But James is saying here, he says, this, this, this righteousness of God should be manifested not just in our conduct, but in our care and our compassion. It should be manifested in our character, the, the very core of who we are. To be a people who are unstained, to be people, people who care for those who are in need, to defend the defenseless. James says that is what's glorifying the Lord. Again, not that this is everything, but James is saying these are some of the things that's practically lived out, truth given to us from the Lord. As we listen attentively to him, we are called to then live differently, to live differently. And this is a natural outflow, right? Because if our attention is fixed on the Lord, if we control our attention and give it to the Lord, what happens is as we control our attention, it cultivates our affection. This is what we find in every relationship is that if I'm really spending time and attention on this person or that person, on my wife, on my children, on my friends, on my family, what happens is we can actually 
move, we can actually cultivate and shape our affections. Affections aren't always just like, oh, surprise, like, oh, I care about this person. Like, there sometimes is initial affection or initial attraction, but, but the reality is that we can guide and shape that affection through the control that we exert on our attention, right? That's what happens. And as we control our attention and grow that affection, what happens is it leads us to different actions. When, when my wife and I first started dating, we were freshmen at Texas A&M. In our freshman year, uh, we both lived on campus, and I worked on campus. I worked in a print lab up, up at uh, A&M. I would take papers from one printer, and I'd put them in a box, and it was probably my highest calling in life. I might, that's, I'll probably do that again in a few years, but uh, I worked on campus, and so I would be locked into this print lab, you know, up until about midnight. So I got off of work one night at midnight. And my wife, then girlfriend, she was super stressed out about school, and she'd like send me a text. She's like, she was going to bed. We weren't going to hang out, and I was like, okay, that's fine. But but I knew I was like, man, she's she's struggling. She's super stressed out with school right now, and so I wanted to do something to you know show my affection for her, to bless her. And so I knew that okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go get sour jelly bellies for Susan. That was my commitment. I was like, I'm going to get sour jelly bellies for Susan. Why? Because those are favorite candy then. It's still kind of her favorite candy now. So it's like, what better way, if she's so stressed out about school, what better way to calm down than just eating a bunch of sugar? And so I was going to go get sour jelly bellies. But the problem was that the place I knew in town that sold sour jelly bellies was Target. And Target was closed at midnight. And so I began to have to think of other options. I started looking up, okay, what are the other 24-hour stores in town? Because at this point, it's like one in the morning. Now, I don't know if you've been to CVS at like 1.45 in the morning. But trust me when I tell you, you never want to go to CVS <laughs> at 1.45 in the morning. Because when you go to CVS at 1.45 in the morning, you discover there is a whole hidden population of College Station that only comes out at like 1.45 in the morning. And they all show up at CVS, and they all look like they want to hurt you. And I went to multiple CVSs. I went to Walgreens. I went to a total of five different stores around town that were open for 24 hours. I went to Walmart. Uh, but I'm here now. That's what counts. And I, I went to all these different places. I was trying to find these sour jelly bellies, and I couldn't find it. Apparently, sour jelly bellies, one of the secret ingredients is like the dust of a bald eagle because they are so rare, so difficult to find. But eventually, I finally found them at HEB, praise the Lord. And as I got the sour jelly bellies, I got back to campus. It was like 2.45 in the morning. I hung them outside of Susan's door, and, and then I left, and then I went to work at 7.30 the next morning. Uh, yeah, anyway, but college. But I... <laughs> I went through all of this process. I went through all these things. Why? Because I cared deeply. I risked my time, my sleep, my safety. I'm telling you, CVS, it's a dark place. It's a dark place. I risked all of it. Why? Because I cared deeply for this woman. I cared deeply for Susan. I wanted to bless her. I wanted to, to serve her in that way. And the Lord is saying, if you are paying attention to me, then I will cultivate your affection for me. And as that affection is cultivating, he says what's going to happen is it is a natural outflow of that affection to live differently, to do different things based on our affection for the Lord and for his teaching. But the problem that we hit is that affection, we know, is fading. It's a fading feeling. 
that maybe we feel this like fire up for the Lord or for a person or for a job or for a project. It can be really intense and powerful at the beginning, but over time and over struggle, that affection can fade. We see this. And so that's why I believe what we see in James is not just a commitment to just, you know, love the Lord. I mean, that is true. That is a good thing. But what James is saying, he says, pure and undefiled religion is what? Not just loving the Lord, but putting that love into practice. It's committing not just our attention, but also committing our actions to loving and serving what God values most. To serve him, to serve our neighbor, to live and love differently in light of what he's told us, in light of what he's revealed about himself. And this is really the core of the Christian faith, that we commit ourselves to live a life according to the Lord's will. And it isn't always fun. It's not always easy. It's one of the things that I love that our, our Julie Dickerson, who's on staff here with our children's ministry, she talked about this time and again with kids. And I'm like, this is good for everyone. This, this progression that we experience, that we see reflected even in Scripture, of how we are called to commit ourselves to the Lord. And at first, maybe it does feel like a duty. It's just something I'm doing it because I know it's important. But eventually, over time, as I commit myself to this duty, it really can become a discipline. It can be something that I do instinctively. It can be something that I, a habit that I'm building, a practice that I'm developing, a muscle that, that's getting stronger and stronger. And then over time, what's amazing is that the Lord says, not only am I at work within you to, to change the way that you think and live, but he says, but I'm, I'm going to work through the way that you, live, that you live and serve, and I can actually transform your affections, and I can change how you feel, and I can change the, the, the heartbeat that you have inside of you to be more in line with my own. And suddenly that what started maybe as a duty that became a discipline can really become a true desire of our heart, a true desire of our mind to spend time with the Lord, to listen to him, to love people around us. And in doing so, worship and bring glory to our God. That's what we're called to. To be a people who control our attention and commit our action to a life that is dedicated to what matters most. To loving the Lord. To listening to him. To serving the people that he's placed around us. And that's where blessing is found. By learning, but then living. That's where we find blessing. And that's the model that was given to us by Jesus Christ. 